So after the Easter break, we're plunging again into Jeremiah, gospel jewels from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a broken prophet, and there is much darkness in this book, but in the midst of all of that, you've got these gospel gems, and most of them are found in Jeremiah chapters 30 to 33, where you have the book of comforts. So we've considered that part of Jeremiah. So there aren't as many gospel jewels left. Uh, so God willing, we should finish this, this side of the summer. Now, chapter 36, we're going to look at the events that we had in our reading, the book burning, but maybe verse 3 is a good summary of what we want to hold before us this morning. This is the gospel jewel. We're gathered in God's house, just as the people who heard Baruch read from the scroll were, and we are gathered to hear God's word. What's the gist of the message of the Bible? What's the gospel gem? Jeremiah 36, verse Three, it may be that the house of Judah, that you will hear all the adver adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, and I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Book burning is horrible, isn't it? I can't cope with any kind of book burning because I love books. It just shows human prejudice at its worst. But when it's the Word of God that's being burnt, I think that's the most abhorrent thing of all. And that's what we had in this chapter. It was none other than the king of Judah, Jehoiakim, who burned the scroll, the Word of God, that was being read to him. The closest I've come to this was being in the evangelistic team in the Nationalized Edward in Aberystwyth a number of decades ago now. This shows my age. And there were a group in the Eisteddfod who were against what we were doing. And they came, and I can only say that they attacked our tents. They didn't attack us physically, and they actually ripped some of the Bibles. Now, that's a frightful thing to do with God's Word. And uh, th this happened in 605 BC, not the one in Aberystwyth now, <laughs> but the event in this chapter. And Nebuchadnezzar was attacking Jerusalem for the first time, so the first parts of the captivity to Babylon. Now, what can we learn from this chapter, and how is it a gospel, a good news to us? Well, the first thing I've got to mention is that it's God's word. The scroll that Baruch read from, and that King Jehoiakim cut up, and put into the hearth was God's word 
That's what makes it so abhorrent. Jeremiah had been prophesying for about 20 years at this stage, and God says to him, write everything down that you've been prophesying. So most of the book that we've been considering so far was written down, not by Jeremiah, but by his secretary, Baruch. Did you realize that even the prophet Jeremiah had a secretary? And Baruch wrote on a scroll all that God said to Jeremiah to say to him. So this scroll is what Baruch read from. He took this scroll to read to the people in God's house during a fast because the army of Nebuchadnezzar, there's a year uh, of events here. As the armies were getting nearer, uh, the king called a fast and it was during that fast day that Baruch, the secretary of Jeremiah, went to God's house to read from the scroll, the warnings that Jeremiah had been prophesying for years and years and had gone unheeded. Now, what's the relevance of that to us? Well, it's God's word. It wasn't Baruch's words. Baruch simply wrote them down. He wrote them down with ink. Baruch didn't write Jeremiah's words. God spoke to Jeremiah. Jeremiah then transferred those words to Baruch, who transferred them to a scroll. Baruch wasn't writing his interpretation of Jeremiah's words. He was writing word for word what the prophets were saying and what God had said to the prophets. Uh, there's a wonderful description by the Apostle Peter of how God's word came to the prophets and how God's word came to all the writers of the Bible. Uh, this is how Peter puts it. Uh, no prophecy of Scripture is of someone's uh, private interpretation, one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. It wasn't Baruch or Jeremiah who decided what to write down, but man spoke, moved, carried along by the Spirit of God. And it's not just the book of Jeremiah or the Old Testament that was given in this way. Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, given by inspiration of God. It means God-breathed. So what we've got here this morning is God's Word. The Bible doesn't contain God's Word. It is God's Word. That's why I've had to correct myself sometimes in announcing the reading. I sometimes mistakenly said we're now going to read God's Word from Jeremiah or something. No, no. All of this is God's Word. I've got a red letter Bible here. The words of Jesus Christ when he was on earth are in red. That is the word of Christ, but all of it are the words of Christ. This is what one man said. The Bible is none other 
than the voice of him that sits upon the throne. Every book of it, every chapter of it, every syllable of it, every letter of it is the direct utterance of the Most High. And then Baruch was to read from the Word of God. I think that's a lovely description of what we are at this morning. So think of the book of Jeremiah. What was Jeremiah like? Jeremiah was, he was a bit of a Welshman, wasn't he? He had this melancholic tendency. And so Jeremiah's temperament comes out in the book. So God didn't use Jeremiah or Baruch as a robot. The Holy Spirit is the author of the book of Jeremiah. But Jeremiah's personality comes out. And you could say the same of any book of the Bible. So when we were in Mark's gospel, Mark was a plain man. And so the plain speaking of Mark came out. The Gospel of John is the opposite of that. The Gospel of John is much more poetic. So that characteristic of the writer comes out. So you've got all these different writers, but one author, God the Holy Spirit. And what is preaching? Well, preaching is God's truth coming out through human personality. We don't know what kind of personality Baruch had, but as he was reading from the Word of God, it would have come through his own personality. Incidentally, at this point, Jeremiah was banned after his temple sermon from going into the temple again. So he had to send Baruch for that reason. Andy will have a different personality to me. Thank God for that. Visiting preachers will have different temperaments. But what matters is the word of God that we are sitting under. How beautiful are the feet of them who preach the gospel of peace. That's a verse that's come to me a lot recently. As long as the word of God is declared. That's what matters. Uh, can I put it like this? A preacher may, may preach poorly even, but as long as there's something of the word there, God can use it. One of my favorite uh, accounts of conversion happened not during a service, but during rehearsals. Now you may say, how can there be a rehearsal for a church service? That doesn't sound right. Well, Spurgeon was going to use a music hall to preach in because there were so many people wanting to hear the word of God. And so he wanted to test the acoustics of the building. This was the 19th century. They didn't have microphones. And so all Spurgeon did was stand in the pulpit. The building was empty. And he just read out one verse. I think it was, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And unbeknown to Spurgeon, there was still a workman in the building. And that workman heard that one verse, and God spoke to him, and he turned and believed in Jesus Christ. Wonderful. One verse. Are you here this morning, believer, 
Are you giving out the word of God? Maybe in the open air, maybe in Sunday school, maybe in uh, other situations. One verse God can use to bring a person to believe in himself. And if you're wondering what we are about as a church, let me give you one verse. We are here to hold forth the word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We're not here to condemn the world. We're here to proclaim this gospel of Jesus Christ. And I know of nothing more thrilling this morning. Jesus Christ is the word of God in the flesh, a word of God incarnate. O wisdom from on high, O truth unchanged, unchanging, O light of our dark sky. This word which reveals Jesus Christ hasn't changed. I can't keep up with all the changes that are happening in our society. But one thing remains the same, and that is Jesus Christ. The word of God, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of God won't. We're dealing with something here this morning that's going to last forever. So the word, just as Baruch read the word of God in the house of God on a special day, so we are doing exactly the same on the Lord's day, which is what a Sunday is. We are in the house of God and we are hearing the word of God. It doesn't matter who the preacher is if it's the word of God that's being opened. That's a wonderful thing. Secondly, what's this word about? Well, that's why maybe verse 3 is the best uh, summing up of the message this morning. What's this word about? It's a word of warning. That's why the king didn't like it. None of us like being warned of danger, do we? It's uncomfortable. But this is why Jeremiah was such a broken man. He's the weeping prophet. He, he wasn't standing on a platform uh, feeling uh, superior to the people that he was ministering to. He wasn't like the religious leaders of Jesus' day who had a holier-than-thou attitude. He felt to the core of his being the message that he was declaring to the people. And he was concerned about them. That's why he wept. And he was warning people about the... Babylonish captivity that was about to happen. During the 20 years, it was in the distance, but now it's getting nearer. Now the enemy is at the gates, and that is why the king uh, commanded a fast to be held. But even then, he still tore up and burnt the word of God. Now, what's the warning for you and for me? There's not going to be a Babylonish captivity. There is a war, another war in Europe. Who would have thought? The, war, the word talks about wars and rumors of wars. But it also talks about these things being warning signs. What's the word warning you and me about? What's a distant event that's getting closer year by year? Many of you know the answer because 
We've been warning you about it every Sunday. Man is appointed once to die. That includes woman as well. And after that, the judgments. It's not Babylonish captivity, but the judgment of God that the Bible is warning about. You can't escape from that in the Word of God. And even if you're not a Christian this morning, I think you can tell when a preacher is trying to uh, gloss over that. Myself and Andy, we just want to be real with you. Uh, we, we want to give you the word in its totality. And when the word of God warns us about judgments, then it's only right that we as God's mouthpiece repeat what the word is saying. It's not our own ideas. Have you ever heard of the ABC of the gospel? Many, many years ago, I preached a sermon on the gospel ABC. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's A. We're all under judgments. But this is the good news. Look at verse 3 again. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities, the disasters which I purpose to bring upon them that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. The Bible does talk about God's judgment. Jesus Christ preached about hell. He preached more about hell than he did about heaven. But the Bible doesn't stop at that, otherwise there's no point in us meeting together. The B is, behold, that verse that Spurgeon used to test the acoustics. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The Old Testament was full of sacrifices. The people of God had to slay lamb after lamb after lamb on altars. Blood would have been everywhere because God was teaching them that without shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Yet, what good news that was. The prospect of escaping judgments, the prospect of a holy God forgiving, forgiving, me, my sin. And that's the message that runs through the Bible from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where there's a first glimpse of the good news all the way to the end of Revelation. Behold, says God, my salvation. Yes, we are under the judgment of God. But the good news is that God has done something about it, that God 2,000 years ago sense not a lamb all the lambs were pointing to a person god himself became a man and god himself the god man was the sacrifice and on that cross he took our sins upon himself this is the message of the bible it's not about us saving ourselves it's about jesus christ doing it but then there's a sea all have sinned behold the lamb of god and there's a sea come to jesus this is the thrust of verse three is it not it may be that the house of judah will hear all the adversities which i purpose to bring upon them that everyone this is coming to jesus everyone may turn 
from his evil way that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Jesus Christ has done all that is required. He's kept the law of God on our behalf. He was our substitute living the perfect life. He on the cross took the punishment for your sin and mine. But my friends, that's not enough in one sense because we need to respond to Jesus Christ. We don't add to what he has done. He's provided 100% satisfaction. But there's no point at all in us simply sitting back. Let me use another illustration. Every illustration is weak in trying to explain what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, but there's a metaphor uh, that's often used to describe the gospel. I don't know if you've heard of it. The gospel train. The gospel train. Now, if you think of what Jesus Christ is and of what he's done as the gospel train, the gospel train that will take you to heaven. Now, you may know a great deal about the gospel train you may know about the plans of how it's built. You may know about the engine and how it's running. You may even know about the captain. But all of that isn't going to do you any good until you get on the train. That's what Jeremiah is talking about here. Yes, we are warned about a day of judgment. Yes, the Bible goes on from that to tell us that there is an escape. Think of Noah, another... Uh, illustration of the gospel the judgment was the flood the escape was the ark but that ark would have done nobody any good unless they stepped into it are you in the ark are you on the train have you come to Jesus Christ and Jeremiah uses this word turn turn it means repent that's the root meaning of repentance, to turn. What does it mean? I'm going the wrong way. When we're born into this world, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're going in the wrong direction. We're on the broad road that leads to destruction. What happens when we are converted? We come to our senses, don't we? It can happen in a different way to every one of us. But we reach a stage where we have a change of mind, not a superficial change of mind, as, you know, I would change my mind as to which supermarkets I would shop at. I shop at Tesco's now instead of Sainsbury's. But this change of mind is a complete change of outlook. I once saw myself as... The center of my life, years I spent in vanity and pride, caring not that my Lord was crucified, I might have attended church, I might have known about it, but it was all about me, me saving myself. But then I was arrested, I was stopped in my tracks, and there was a change of outlook. I began to realize that I am the sinner, and that I need to be saved, and that God has done something about it, and I want Jesus Christ. And so, can you see what's happening? I'm turning. I'm turning. Repent. Convert. Repentance is the change of outlook, a deep work that results in conversion. Conversion is the actual uh, turning, the, the change that shows itself in a new lifestyle. The prodigal. He came to his senses, didn't he? 
in the far country. He repents. But then it doesn't stop at that. He actually says, I'm not going to stay here. I'm going to return to my father's house. And so it shows itself. It's not just somebody uh, doing penance or showing remorse for their sin, maybe wanting to escape from judgment. Oh, no, it's more than that. The, the uh, prodigal, he hates his sin. Uh, he is mourning uh, for his spiritual condition. But he doesn't stop at that. He says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to get up and I'm going to go in a new direction. I'm going to go back to my father. And the father is welcoming him with open arms. This is Jeremiah's message. This is the message of the whole Bible. This is the message of John the Baptist. John the Baptist preached repentance for the remission of sins. That means turning. Not that we trust in our turning. Every time the Bible mentions repentance, it implies faith. Every time the Bible mentions faith, it implies a repentant faith. So this is what Jesus was preaching. This is what the early church was preaching. I'll just give you one example in Acts 3. These things we are warning you, said Peter and John. God has warned by the mouth of his prophets that the Christ would suffer and that he has fulfilled what the prophecies have said. And this is what you have to do. Repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that you may know times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. Don't you want to experience that? It, it's, it's getting quite um, sticky, isn't it, again, the weather? And there's a huge advantage living in Penarth, you know? You get the sea breeze. Especially when you're up on the fifth floor. The freshness of the sea breeze. And sometimes you, you can just see like a haze over Cardiff. How refreshing. The sea breeze. How refreshing. Learning that I don't have to stay where I'm at under condemnation. I don't have to stay in that fog that there is a saviour and that tr trusting in him, turning to him, I can know the refreshing sense of sins forgiven. Now what Jeremiah is doing here, look at what he's doing. Verse 3 again. It may be that somebody will hear the warning and the wonderful promise and that they might turn and be forgiven. Can I repeat those words to us? Maybe somebody here this morning through this very plain sermon, may hear about God's judgments and about what God has provided in Jesus Christ to escape that judgment and of the invitation to turn from our condemnation and our sin and to come to Jesus. 
Maybe you will do that. Isn't that why we stand in pulpits, Andy? So that just one person may do that, or more than one. That would be wonderful. But what Jeremiah is doing here is using two things, two pressures. He's using the stick and the carrots. He's using the threats. There's a right use of threats. And he's using the promise. Now, what's the stick? Well, the stick is the contemplation of God's judgments. It's as if a person is looking on one side. Uh, I saw the last judgment in the uh, Sistine Chapel, Michelangelo's masterpiece. And on one side was... Now, let me get it right. On the left side was heaven and on the right side was hell. For some reason, I always choose this side to describe hell and that side to describe heaven. But on the one side, there is the fires of hell and you can smell the fires of hell and that scares you. Maybe you hear of people dying. As you get older, you can see the judgments approaching, getting nearer, as was the Babylonian army, the army of Nebuchadnezzar in Jeremiah's day. Maybe you get to an age where you start reading the obituaries and the people in the obituaries are mostly younger than you. And you realize, I haven't got much time left in this world. And it scares you. I say good. Is there anybody here who's afraid of dying? Who's afraid of having to stand before God as judge? We should be afraid. The problem with some of the people who heard Jeremiah was this. They weren't afraid. Thank God Micaiah was afraid and some of the other people were afraid. But when they took the scroll to the king and to the royal court, they weren't afraid, were they? How foolish. Sometimes we're accused as Christians of committing intellectual suicide, of just leaping into the dark. But to me, leaping into the dark is not considering these things. We're not to be prejudiced when we approach the Bible, when we look at the big issues of life. With an open mind, we see what is ahead of us. And when I see that one day I'm going to have to die, and I will have to give an account of what I've done, then I'm afraid. So that's the one side. There is that threat. But then on the other, there is that wonderful carrot, if I can describe forgiveness of sins as a carrot. The wonderful prospect of our iniquities being blotted out. Yes, there is the fires of hell on the one side, but then there is the love of Christ on the other. Oh, just think of it just for a moment that God can forgive you in an instance. God can forgive you. We'll be remembering shortly in the communion all my iniquities on him was laid. Once we didn't care about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We may even have used his name as a swear word. But the moment we turn to him, the most precious name in all the world is the name of Jesus Christ because it means saviour. And the most beautiful 
of events is what is really something horrendous. But the cross dealt with our sins. Our sins, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to that cross so that we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And when you think of the open arms of Jesus on the cross, think of Jesus Christ when he was here in this world. If anybody could have looked down on other people, it would have been Jesus. Here was the perfect human being. If anybody could have judged other people, it could have been Jesus. Remember the religious leaders bringing that poor woman before Jesus, the one that had been caught in adultery? Remember what he said to those hypocrites, he that is without sin cast the first stone and all of them left. But there was man, one man there who was without sin, Jesus. And he could have cast the first stone, but he didn't because he loved that woman. He was called the friend of sinners. He said to people, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you feel to be a sinner this morning? Even if all you can say is, well, I don't feel my sin as I should be. And that makes me feel more wretched. Well, you know what it is to be a sinner then. Come to Jesus Christ and welcome. Oh, let me just read to you some of his promises. They're some of the most glorious promises in the word. Come unto me all that are weary. And heavy laden, aren't you weary with having to deal with your sin? Come unto me and I will give you rest. Do you feel too bad for Jesus Christ? Listen to him. He that comes to me, I will never cast out. The church may cast you out, but I will never cast you out. Listen to him on another occasion. Do you think that you've committed some sin that is never going to be forgiven? All manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven. What a wonderful saviour. What wonderful promises. I was blessed reading J.C. Ryle. I hope there's going to be a reduction on some J.C. Ryle books. They're all worth getting. And he writes, I remember hearing of a mother whose daughter ran away from home and lived a life of sin. For a long time, no one could tell where she was. Yet that daughter came back and was reclaimed. She became a true repentance. She was taught to mourn for sin. She turned to Christ and all things became new. Her mother was asked one day to tell what she had done to bring her daughter back. What steps had she taken? Her reply was a very striking one. She said, I prayed for her. Night and day. There are some of you here praying for your children. Night and day. But then she went on to say, but that's not all I did. I never went to bed at night without leaving my front door unlocked and the door on the latch. I thought if my daughter came back some night when I was in bed, she should never be able to say that she found the door shut. She should never be able to say that she came to her mother's home but could not get in. And so it turned out her daughter came back one night and tried the door and found the door open and at once came in to go out and sin no more. That open door was the saving of her soul. That open door is a beautiful illustration of the heart of Jesus towards sinners. The door of mercy is not just on a latch, is it? It's set wide open. The door is not yet locked. The door is always upon the latch. 
God's heart is full of love. God's heart is full of compassion. Whosoever you may be, may have been, even if it's midnight, at any time, you will find an open door. An open door. The past shall be forgotten. A present hope be given. Praise God for such a gracious Savior. I can think of these people hearing not just of the warnings, the stick, but the carrots of this promise. I can think of them remembering God forgiving Manasseh. Manasseh, the most wicked king. He found an open door. Manasseh, who had not just turned to idols, but sacrificed his own children. That Manasseh, at midnight, spiritually speaking, found the door wide open. Well, I've got to come to a conclusion. We need to come to the Lord's table to remember Calvary. But what's your response this morning? I've just skimmed the surface. What's your response? You may not rip your Bible like King Jehoiakim did. You may not burn your Bible. But you just may say, no, thank you. Hold God at arm's length. What I want every one of us to do is not to rip our Bibles, but to rip our hearts. In the Old Testament, the sign of repentance was the ripping of one's clothes. Now, we don't need to do that. We, we don't need... Change your hearts. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Do you know there were people probably who heard Baruch reading from his scroll and because it was a fast day, they were too busy with their fasting to respond to the word. How sad to be so religious, to be so into religious ceremony that we're not looking at the big picture. This is what Spurgeon said. It is to repent that God is commanding us. God commands all people everywhere, including in the heath, to repent. We are not satisfied with having your ear, nor your eyes. We are not content with having you gathered in the house of worship. It is all in vain, except you repent and be converted. We are not come to tell you that you must reform a little and mend your ways, except you put your trust in Christ, forsake your old way of life, and become new creatures in Christ. You must perish. No church going, no chapel going will save you. No form of worship no profession of godliness. Repent and believe the gospel. You may not feel that you're repenting in the right way. In one sense, that's academic. The fact is, we need to turn to Christ. We need to turn from sin and turn to the Savior of sinners. Convince us of our sin. Yes, but don't stop at that. 
then lead to Jesus' blood. Do you, do you, do you enjoy visiting graveyards? Do, do you enjoy doing that? I, I sometimes like looking at the epitaphs on people's graves. And this is the best epitaph I've ever found. Here lie the earthly remains of John Berridge. He was a nutcase, John Berridge. He was a minister. Late vicar of Everton, not the Everton in Liverpool, but another Everton, and servant of Jesus Christ. And then this epitaph goes on to ask you a question. Me a question. Are thou born again? Are you born again? Well, well. No salvation without a new birth. I was born, this is John Berridge speaking from beyond the grave. I was born in sin, February 1716. Remained ignorant of my fallen state till 1730. Lived proudly on faith and works till 1754. Was admitted to the ministry in 1755. And then finally fled to Jesus for refuge. 1756, and fell asleep in Christ, 1793. Who knows whether somebody here will come to their senses and turn from their sin to Jesus Christ and be born again, twice born I was so encouraged to hear our Ukrainian brethren talk about being born a second time on Wednesday nights. What a prospect, having a hope, a hope of heaven, even in the midst of this veil of tears, which is life in this world at the best of times. May God give us all grace to turn we must always turn, turn, turn. Uh, and may we find Jesus Christ to be the one that thrills our souls for his namesake.